Thank you, Sharon. Go ahead and turn, if you would, to the passage that she just read. Mark chapter 12 is our text. And hey, by the way, if you weren't here last week, you may notice a little bit of a change in our room. We've got new chairs. And uh, my daughters were, we weren't here last week. I was up at Brentwood and my daughters sat down for the first time in these chairs and they said, they're kind of scratchy. You know, Daddy, I want the old chairs back. And uh, here's the thing with these new chairs. Believe it or not, they'll actually allow us to have 20% more chairs in this room. So they're a little bit narrower. Some of you may have noticed that. It kind of gets us a little closer together as a body, but it enables us to increase our capacity in this room, which is a really, really good news. So it's a small investment that we've made that it's going to allow this room to continue to serve more and more people. The second thing that it does, you might have noticed every third or fourth chair, we now have a Bible, and we're able to actually include Bibles in the room. Now, our hope is that you'll bring your own copy of God's Word. And I know we put it on the screen, but we really want you to see it. And one of the reasons we want you to see it is so you can see what I'm saying up here is not just coming out of my mouth. Everything we teach is based on God's Word. But if you forgot to bring your copy of God's Word, or if you don't have a copy of God's Word, like an actual hard one, I'm not talking about the electronic kind, but an actual one with like real pages made from trees, <laughs> we, we would love for you to grab that one. In fact, if you need one for your home, Take it home with you. It'd be our gift to you if you don't have one at, at your house or if you want one in the uh, New American Standard Version, which is what we actually teach from. So grab a copy of God's Word, if you will, and turn to Mark chapter 12. Now, as Tim referenced already, and you heard the passage read by Sharon, this is an incredible passage. It's one of those high points, I think, in the Gospel of Mark. So we've been in this Gospel now for months. I mean, I don't remember actually when we started, but it's been months and months, and it's going to take us through about August. So we have a good ways yet to go. But this is one of the high points in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is essentially summarizing the entire law. And I was thinking about how to preach this, and I remembered Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living, and it's active. And you all may remember that text. And I was thinking about what does that mean? Well, it means that it's alive and it's on the move. So this book that you're holding in your hands is alive and it's on the move. In other words, it's doing things. It's not just sort of sitting out there for someone to come and study and read, you know, like most other books in your library. This book is alive and it's doing things. How does it do things? How does it accomplish things? Well, it begins right down in here. We not only study it with our minds, but it sort of sinks into our belief. It sinks into our faith and begins to transform us from the inside out. That's what this text is today. This text we're going to read today, like every other verse in the scripture is alive and the desire of the Holy Spirit as it re-speaks the same word that the Spirit authored 2,000 years ago is that there would be something that would happen literally in the teaching of God's word in the studying of God's word this morning and so that's my prayer my hope is that you've not come here just to consume some religious goods and services this morning some good music some good hopefully good teaching this morning but that you have come to be changed. And then that transformation would then sort of rise up, upward toward God and outward toward others. That's what our text, where our text is going to go. So let's jump right in. I'm not going to spend any more time on the intro because I want to get to the meat of the text. Now here's the context. If you were here last week, and by the way, if you missed Lloyd's sermon, it was such a great sermon. Um, he entered this, this time of testing, right? Jesus is in his last week before he died. And he begins to be challenged by the religious leaders. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to trap him. And so last week, there were two traps. One involved taxes. 
right? You know, that's a hot topic even to this day. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? The answer was, give me a coin whose picture's on the coin. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God's the things which are God's. And I'll talk more about that later in the message. The second trap was about the resurrection. And they set up this long sort of, um, this lady was married to this guy and then this person and this person. Who will be married to who in the resurrection? And really what they're getting after, after here is, is there a resurrection? Because there was a debate about that at the time. And Jesus, every time, turns these traps around. He's saying, listen, you're trying to trap me. You're trying to send me to death. I'm going to turn this trap around and offer you life with this. So he's pointing them to life each and every time. This is the third and final trick, final trap, and we're going to see what Jesus does with it. He certainly turns it around toward them and offers them life through it. So I'm going to read back through the text a little bit at a time and explain it as I go. So Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. So they, they've been arguing already, and this scribe is overhearing that. And recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? All right, let's talk about this for a minute. How is this a trap? Well, you need to understand just a little bit of background. The scribes were, in our day, lawyers. These were folks who had studied God's law. They had parsed it. They had memorized it. They had learned it so well. They'd broken it out until its smallest and biggest parts. And just as today, you have sort of case law that the, you know, the attorneys will argue, according to this you know, law that was passed this time, and then according to this case, this trial, then that means this and this. And they would build these cases around this. They had, the scribes had, identified, get this, 613 commands from the law of Moses. And here's how that broke down. 248 positive laws, those are the thou shalts. 365 negatives, thou shalt nots. So just think about that. You have one negative command for every day of the year. Right? Happy, happy, joy, joy. 613 total. And what they had done was they, they sort of said, listen, this is the burden, O people of God, that you are responsible for. And these scribes actually became sort of like policemen who would walk around. And if you weren't obeying the Sabbath exactly right, or you weren't doing this right, or you had sort of, you know, moved this on the wrong day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to get your hand slapped. Now, of all these 613, there were debates that arose. Hey, aren't there some that are weightier than others? In other words, aren't there, you know, there are felonies and then there are misdemeanors? And if that's the case, what's the greatest of all? Another way they would ask the question is, is there one commandment that you could point to that would sort of be above and, and all the others would fall underneath it, like the foremost, the leading, the tip of the spear. Think of it that way. And this was a common discussion and they would debate their answers. And so this scribe is coming to Jesus. Now, depending on what Jesus says, they could use his words later against him. They could come back and say, didn't you say such and such? Wasn't it the greatest command? And didn't we see your disciples breaking that law or whatever it is? So they're eager to hear how Jesus will respond. Now, again, his response is brilliant. And I'm going to read it, and then we'll talk about why it was so brilliant. So pick up the text in 20, verse 29. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Pause there. You know he's not done, but let's pause there. The 
passage that Jesus quoted from was Deuteronomy 6. This was known in Hebrew as the Shema. It still is to this day. In fact, the Shema is recited by devout Jews twice a day. It was in Jesus' time. It still is to this day, in the morning and in the evening. This is the paradigmatic Jewish prayer. And it's called the Shema because that's the first word in Hebrew. Shema means hear. So if you're going to hear someone recite this in Hebrew, which is how it's recited, they would say Shema Israel. That's how it would start. Hear Israel. Right? And then it goes on. The Lord your God is one. The command itself that Jesus is getting at in the English translation is five words long. Love the Lord your God. That's the command. And then everything that comes before it and after it modifies or enhances those five words. Love the Lord your God. So we are to love the Lord your God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Now the word with in English actually in Hebrew is from. It's a Hebrew word from. So the idea is your love is to spring forth from your heart, from your mind, from your soul, from your strength. In other words, it comes out of you and it encompasses all of you. So think about Lloyd's message last week. And for those of you that weren't here, I'll just summarize this part. When he holds up the coin, Caesar's image is on the coin. Lloyd asked you, whose image is on you? The image of God. Going back to creation, you were made in the image of God. You bear the image of God. What does that mean? Give to God the things that are his. What is his? Only my body, only my heart, only my strength, only my soul, only all of me. Only all of me. It's to come out of us and up and out toward others. Now, that's the idea of the command. There's much more we could say there, but I, I need to keep going through this. The idea here is this is a huge command. And it deals with our relationship with God. And if you love the Lord your God with all your mind and all your heart and all your strength and all your soul, then everything else, all the other commands that pertain to your relationship with God, they're all going to fall into place. Now, Jesus doesn't let him off the hook there. He's going to keep going. Let's look at verse 31. The second. Now, pause here. The guy only asked him for one, right? And Jesus is doing something brilliant. He's saying, listen, there is one, and then there's another that's like it or that flum comes out of it. In, in a parallel passage, it says this. And so there are two commands. You put them together, and it makes one overall command. So verse 31, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, this little formula, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, I'm afraid it's become so familiar to us that we miss how powerful it is and how brilliant it, it is and, and how just sort of stunning it would have been when it was first pronounced. No one up to this point had sort of grabbed onto these two ideas and put them together like this. In fact, you're going to see in a minute the response of the scribe. I mean, he's sort of taking this in, and even he has to recognize that Jesus has answered him well. What's so amazing about this is Jesus is saying, you take all 613 commands, and you boil them all down, and it's all about a single word. Love. Love. And there are only two objects of love. Now, we'll talk about this in a minute. We love a whole lot of things, but we're only to love, foremost, two things, God and other people. Vertical love, horizontal love. 
All 613 commands summarized in this. So here's what Jesus is doing. That's incredible. This command to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, it is incredibly freeing and simultaneously incredibly challenging. And it's the both. It's sort of a, you're set free. I just spilt my communion. <laughs> Mark, Kenny, if you're in the room, when we do communion, I just spilt mine. So we, I, I'll need another one. Um, <laughs> Last week at Brentwood, I literally almost fell off the stage. Like I got up right here and I got excited like I do and I just started to take another step. Um, okay, Jesus is saying freeing and challenging simultaneously and you're going to hold that tension. Now, why is it freeing? It's freeing because if there are 613 commands all together, it boils down to one word. You don't have to memorize 613. You don't have to split hairs. You don't have to become a lawyer. You don't have to become a scribe in order to obey God's law. It's incredibly freeing. Here's how Augustine put it. Augustine said this, love and do as you like. You feel the simplicity in that? Love and then do as you like. You see, and if you really understand love, you start to see how that's actually true. That's, that's actually Right. Now, some of you, um, and I, I've talked to some of you over the last few months, you're kind of just getting back into church. You know, maybe you grew up in church and you've been out for a while or, you know, you know may, maybe you've got kids now. And so you're like, man, I, we need to get back in church, be good for the kids. And, and you're getting back into church. And, and I hope what you don't feel is a sense of weightiness of, of all this, um, you know, r- religious stuff that you have to start doing in order to be accepted by God. That's not the good news. Now, do we want you to give? Yeah, why? So that stuff like South Vietnam, can, or South Vietnam, South Vietnam, South Sudan can happen. Do we want you to worship? Absolutely. Why? Because your heart is set free as you worship. Do we want you to serve? Of course we do, because it's how you pour yourself out. But are these things required to be approved by God, acceptable by God? No, they're not. 613 things, summarize it down, just love. Okay, just love. It's incredibly freeing. Now, why is it challenging? Well, the one word love cuts straight to the heart of our core problem as human beings, which is the heart. It's our core problem. Now, if you don't understand why the one word love exposes you and challenges you, then you need a little more background on the the Greek behind the word love. So listen in English the way that we use this one word, love, all right? In English, I would say, I love beautiful weather. I love college football. I love burritos. And I love my wife, Jody. So we just celebrated 16 years on Friday, you know? And as I said, I love her, I thought about what does it mean for me to say those words? I love burritos and I love Jody. It's like something's wrong with this picture, right? It's like, I better mean something different when I say that. And sure enough, when you dig into the Greek, and many of you have heard this before, there's a lot of different words for love. We, we, they're all translated. One word in English, it comes from very different words in Greek that have different nuances and different meanings. So take a guess, for those of you that have heard this before, what do you think the Greek word is that Jesus is, is pulling out as he's saying, love God and love people? What do you think the word is? Ah, oh, see, you know Greek. You didn't know you knew Greek. Agape. Now, if you're familiar with this word, you might have a sense of what it means, but if you're not familiar with this word, let me share this with you. Agape is a word that refers to God's love. 
and that's important for you to know. Agape is reserved for this idea of unselfish. It's self-giving. It's unconditional. Now, what's fascinating when you study ancient literature of the time, and so you're, you're reading Greek literature that was written before Christ, after Christ, and during the time of Christ, and there's quite a bit written out there, you almost never see the word agape used. It was an existing word, but it's almost never used in extra-biblical Greek. Then all of a sudden you get the New Testament, and it's like all over the place. Agape, 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 and it's used in two contexts. Number one, to describe the love of God, and number two, to describe the command to love that it's supposed to come out of us. Now, if you put these two things together, it was foreign to that culture until the New Testament. Now, think about this. Here's what this means. Agape is alien love. It comes from outside of us. We, fallen human beings, are actually not capable in and of ourselves, Tim already said this earlier, of agape. Why is that? Because we are not unselfish. We are not selfless. We are not self-giving, naturally. We're the opposite of that. We are selfish, So this foreign love must invade us in order for us to live out the foremost command, which is the summation of all 613 commands. You see, you're in trouble, right? This is a freeing, yes, but it's also a very great challenge. I'll summarize it this way. Agape is self-giving and you are self-serving. You are, I am, we are. In and of ourselves, we are not self-giving, we are self-serving. Serving Apart from the Spirit of God, it is impossible for us to produce agape. It is not in us naturally. Do you know what is in us? Do you know what kind of love is in you and what kind of love is in me? Burrito love. We don't have agape love. We have burrito love. Now, I, I went by yesterday right about dinner time to my favorite burrito place. This is from Chipotle. And, and I, I got a burrito. So this is, this is like not like a, a, a foil stuffed with like a sock or something. This is actually a real burrito. And I, I kept it carefully last night, refrigerated, preserving it for today. And, and hopefully, after the second service is done, I'm going to joyfully consume this burrito because I love burritos. And no matter how the sermon goes, the rest of this morning and the next service as well, at least I have a burrito. <laughs> that, that's going to be my happy place. Now, Here's the thing about this burrito. I love burritos. I genuinely do. They make me happy. I will say this. It is impossible for me to agape this burrito. There's nothing in me that has any relationship toward this burrito other than what it can provide for me. You see, I have a selfish love for this burrito. I want to consume it. And doing anything else other than consuming this burrito is not going to flow out of me. Especially, right, when I unwrap it and I take my first bite. It's like try prying it from my hands then. Right? This is burrito love. I love this burrito because what this burrito can do for me. Right? That's a bad paraphrase of JFK or something like that. Now, I also have a bottle of water because not only am I hungry right now, I'm also thirsty. So as I eat and as I drink, my needs are filled and therefore I love this meal. You see, because it meets my needs. I am hungry. I am thirsty. The meal is the answer to my problem. This is exactly how we tend to love everything else. Why do I love college football? 
because it stirs some kind of competitive juices in me, right? And it meets some need that I have to win, except on the bad years, you know, and then it's miserable. Why do I love beautiful fall weather? Because it makes me feel good inside, right? Why do I love anything else? Why do you love anything else? Because it does something for you. It meets a need, you see. Not bad, not necessarily, it's not sinful to love fall weather and beautiful things and and burritos. It's not sinful at all. But you have to understand, this is not agape. This is burrito love. So then I get to my wife, Jody on past Friday, and I say, I love her. And I say, how do I love her? Do I love her just because of how she makes me feel? Do I love her just because of how well she takes care of me and how well she serves our family and how sweet she is and how she wants to hear about my, my, my day at the end of the evening? Is that why I love her? Not bad reasons, but it's not deep enough to fulfill the command, agape, your neighbor, you see. So Jody and I, 16 years ago, uh, a little more than that, we were planning our wedding and when we realized we've got to do this first dance and what song are we going to use for the first dance? And uh, we kicked around a lot of different ideas and I kind of liked this country song that was on, on the air about the time. Uh, some of you may remember this song. It was, it was by John Michael Montgomery. Anybody remember him? And the song, I don't know if he's still out there or not. The song is, I love the way you love me. And here's how it goes. I'm, I'm not going to attempt to sing it for you. But it says, you know, I like the way you do this, and I like the way you do that. I don't remember all the lyrics, but one of them was something like, you know, I I like the way that you still cry at sappy old movies you've seen hundreds of times. and I like the way you do this. I like the way you do this. Then it gets to the chorus. But I love the way you love me. I was like, I really like this song. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. That's the most selfish lyric ever written. (laughs) I love the way you love me. It's also, I think, the most honest country song ever written. <laughs> All right? So I've been listening to country music lately. You know, this sort of stirred this thing in me. And I like a little country music, but I don't listen to it all the time. And I had to catch up on a lot of the, the more popular songs. And here's what I heard when I was listening to these lyrics. And I, I know i got to be careful because we got some songwriters in the room. Maybe you wrote some of these songs. But I was listening to them. <laughs> and it's like this. It's just like, I, I, I love the way you do this for me. I, I love that about you. And, and I want to be with you forever. It's just like, they would never say this, but it's just like, I love you and I want to consume you. I don't want you to ever leave me because I need you. It's burrito love, y'all. And it comes natural to you. And it comes natural to me. It is the kind of love that is in here. And Jesus is saying, you cannot love me like that. And you can't love your neighbor like that. And fulfill the greatest command. There is an alien love that must come into you so that you can begin to love outwardly, agape, and agape your neighbor as well. Upward and outward. So here's our problem. Let me summarize this before I get to the good news. Self is your highest love. It just is. It's part of your fallen human nature. Everything else you love flows out of your love of self. It's so true. It's so true. You don't have agape love. You have burrito love, and I do as well. Jesus is saying, you can summarize the entire law by saying the goal is for this core self-love to be transformed to agape, to love God first and foremost, and then to lift other people to that same love level of pursuit as you naturally pursue yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, which already comes natural to you, you see. 
Jesus is doing more than just answering a technical scribal question. He's pushing down below the surface into the heart of this scribe and by extension below the surface of our hearts as well. Now, we got to look at the, the scribe's response. He's, he's pretty impressed by this answer. Let's pick it back up in verse 33 of 32. Verse 32. The scribe said to him, write teacher, and he's calling him rabbi here, acknowledging he knows what he's talking about. He's a rabbi. You have truly stated, he's just going to rephrase it and, and change a few words around, paraphrasing. He is one and there is no one else besides him, verse 33, to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself. He's going to add this last part. Is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why was it a big deal that he added that last part? Because the scribes and Pharisees were all about the offerings and the sacrifices. That was the epitome of their religion. And remember what, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about this. Jesus curses the fig tree as an illustration that all that's going to come to a close. The, the sacrificial system is dying, and it is going to be done when the temple is destroyed. And that's going to happen, you know, Several decades later, in AD 70, it's all coming down. Even to this day, there is no more sacrificial system. Not because they're, the Jews are politically correct and they don't want to kill animals. Did you know if you go over to Jerusalem today, there's groups of Jews that are waiting for the day, longing for the day that they can reinstitute the sacrificial system at a new temple, at a third temple. That's how they believe they, what they must do to get to God. And, and they, they didn't hear the words of Jesus. So for this scribe to say, listen, there is something that's higher than the sacrificial system. He's starting to get it. And Jesus is going to acknowledge that. You're about to hear the only words of commendation that Jesus ever spoke to religious authorities that we have record of. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. I, I bet that was true. <laughs> you know, three strikes, you're out. You know, every time they tried to trap Jesus, he turned it around and, and sort of trapped them with an offer of life. Tragic that they did not receive it, that they could not hear it. Now, you are not far from the kingdom of God. I want to drill down into that phrase. I think it's the key, actually, to the whole passage. What does Jesus mean when he says this? You're not far from the kingdom of God. I think he's saying a couple of things. Number one, he's saying your intellect, it says Jesus saw that he answered him intelligently. Your intellect is pointing you in the right direction. You are acknowledging it's not just about the sacrifices. That's not the foremost. That's not the epitome. There's something more. It's agape. That's number one. But notice it says you're not far from. He doesn't say you are there. So Jesus is also acknowledging there's something still missing. There's still a gap. There's something this, this man still lacks. It's one thing to understand God's highest intent for you. It's quite another to enter into it. You can't agape God and agape your neighbor with a soul turned in against itself. 
in your selfishness, right? In your me-ism, which is true of all of us and, and is the only reality for the unredeemed heart, you cannot agape. You do not have the alien love inside of you that is necessary for it to flow out. What Jesus is hinting at here is there's a spiritual transformation that must happen if you are to obey the law. Like something beyond you and outside of you has to come into you and transform you. And he's saying, you're not far. You're not far, you expert in the law. E even you who understands that it's actually not about the sacrificial systems, it's about love. Even you who gets it up here, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. Now, this is where I think the text really begins to come alive for us. So I, I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about how this applies to us. Like the scribe, it's important that you understand the deep problem that you have. Even to this day, those of you who are followers of Christ, the transformation has begun, but it's not yet done. You still have a deep problem. And secondly, your hope for transformation. So let me dig into this. Number one, the problem. Have you seen through this sermon that the foremost command is one that you cannot follow, is one that you cannot live out apart from something happening? Do you see that? It would almost be like you taking a new job that was your dream job and on the first day you go before your boss and he says, listen, there's only one thing that you have to do really well in order to succeed in this job and you know, be successful and make lots of money and promotions and all these kinds of things. The only thing you really need to do is fly. That's all you have to do. Just go run up on that cliff over there and jump off and fly, and I promise you, you'll be successful. You're like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> this isn't fair. Like, this is a trap. Jesus, the one thing you're asking us to do is the thing that is not in us to do? How is this going to work? Now, why can't you fly? Why can't you? Think back to the Garden of Eden for a minute. God put Adam in an environment where he was invited to live out the great commandment. And God didn't tell it to him explicitly, but he actually sort of did. So think about it this way. God put Adam in a garden with beautiful creation all around him, and he essentially said to Adam, Adam, there are beautiful things here. There are creeks and streams and waterfalls and fields and flowers and plants and wonderful things and incredible animals, and you're going to get to know all of them. But there are only two things that you are to love. Two things that I'm calling you to love. Number one, love me. And the way you're going to do that, Adam, is you're going to obey me and you're going to represent my image on this earth. And we're going to walk together in the cool of the day and we're going to have a relationship of love. Number two, I have made for you another human being out of your own flesh so that you can love another human as you love yourself, Adam. Love her. Love this other human. Love your neighbor and love me. That's all Adam had to do. Now, of course, it went all wrong, right? Why did it go wrong? Because Adam and Eve elevated love of self above love of God and love of one another. So they said, that fruit looks good. That's the fruit that God said, don't eat. I don't care. I want it anyway. And then the first thing they did after they ate the fruit was they started blaming each other, right? So their love of God was broken. Their love of one another was broken. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. And then what happened with their son? He decided that he loved his own pride more than he loved his own brother's life. And so he killed his brother. He elevated self-love above love of neighbor. And on and on and on and on and on. Every page of scripture is filled with this over and over and over again until we get through the Bible on into 2017. May 28th, 
And here we are, this room filled with those of us who have elevated love of self above love of God and love of other people. Now, you must understand that what God is commanding Adam in the garden and Jesus is reiterating that same command in Mark is for our own flourishing. Yes, it glorifies God, but it also speaks to the way that we were engineered to run, the way that we were engineered to be fully alive. Love God, Adam. Love this other woman and you will flourish. You will live and never die. Now, the law, which is encapsulated in the command to love, and then detailed in 613 commands that all play out love of God, love of others, the law was given in order to point people back toward fullness of joy, which is found in loving God and loving other people. Think about it this way. Every command in the Bible, all the thou shalt and all the thou shalt not are all about God inviting you into the deepest life possible. There's just one problem. Your sinful nature. You cannot live out the commands. You can't do it. The path to fullness of joy and flourishing is to love the right things, but you are naturally bent to love the wrong thing, which is yourself. Your only hope is to be transformed by love itself. So that is exactly what Jesus did. Now, most sermons, I'm going I'm to tell you how we're going to end our service in a minute. Here's how most sermons on, on this text I've ever heard end. It, it ends this way. Now, go out and work harder to love. Go out and redouble your efforts. Go out. You know you're supposed to love God. You know you're supposed to love others. What's wrong with you? You need to actually start doing it. Put the word into action. Now, that's exactly what I want you to do. That is exactly what I hope will happen but I don't think you can do it of your own will. I know you can't. I know I can't. And even if you somehow managed just for a little bit to love people better and love God better in and of your own will, you'd begin to start feeling good about yourself. And very quickly, that love would turn toward your pride and you'd start saying, ah, this is actually a way for me to feel better Burrito love. You're not far, though, from the kingdom of God. Now, there's a second meaning in this. The kingdom of God was literally right in front of this man, right? I mean, like five or ten feet away, the kingdom of God was right in front of him. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, think about this burrito one more time. As long as I'm hungry... As long as I'm starving, I can never agape this burrito. I can only consume this burrito because I need it, y'all. I desire it because I'm hungry. But what if I've been filled? What if my core hunger has been satisfied? Well, then I can look at you and I can say, you look hungry. I've eaten, I'm full, I'm satisfied. You take it. You cannot produce agape love, but it can flow through you once you have received it. So Jesus, 
on his very last night, gathered his disciples around a table, and he fed them. He fed them. And this is how I want to end our service this morning. I've asked the ushers to gather. If you'd go ahead and come down and start passing out the communion elements, the band is going to come on as well. Now, there's going to be a number of distractions, but I want to just keep talking as, as, we, as we think about this for a minute. And I want us to think about the significance of this Lord's table. So they gathered around a table together in community. And Jesus fed them. He fed them literally. They had lamb, they had bread, they had drink. But then after they were fed literally... Jesus, recognizing that that meal they just ate will never satisfy them long term, he says, I'm going to feed you in a way that will satisfy your soul forever. Jesus essentially said to them, I'm going to feed you in a way that will meet your core longing to be loved. Because the reason, men and women, that we cannot agape people is because we're starving. How are we going to give something away when we're hungry for it? How are we going to love our wives and love our husbands unselfishly when we feel like our needs are not being met? How are we going to love our neighbor when we've got so much to do to squeeze love out of our jobs and out of our entertainment and out of our relationships so that we can be filled up to love? We can't let any of that pour out because we're starving for love. And so Jesus gathered his disciples around. He said, listen, you have a core need that you know nothing about. And, and tomorrow... I'm going to meet that need. Your core sin is selfishness. And the only way that's going to be undone is if I make a sacrifice for you, if I die for you. The only way that's going to be undone is if I unselfishly love you to pour into you that which you are incapable of producing on your own. You see, this is the gospel. This is the death of Jesus. This is the sacrifice of Jesus. So you're holding in your hand right now the bread and the cup. Now, this points to something beyond itself. You ever thought of this? That little cracker will not satisfy your hunger if you skip breakfast this morning. It's just not going to do it. If you're thirsty right now and have a little bit of a dry mouth, that little drop of juice is going to do nothing for you. But what you're holding in your hand is pointing beyond that. What you're holding in your hand represents the meal that you are hungry for. And here's how the gospel works. You believe it at the first and then you have to keep revisiting it because in your sinful self, you still get hungry. Now, your first belief guarantees you will be with Christ in eternity. Hallelujah. But until you are sanctified, until you are made perfect, you've got to keep going back in your mind, and your heart. You're saying, I am loved. I am loved. And so it can flow out of me. That's what this meal represents. So we have here in our hands, symbolically, the meal that we all need. And for all of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe of you, some of you in this moment for the very first time understand the good news that Jesus died so you could be filled, so that you could agape, so that you could live out the commands, love God, love other people. This meal is for you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. So eat it and remember me.
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will be shed for you. As often as you drink it, drink it and remember. Remember. 